Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider donating. Even if you toss me five bucks, it makes me feel better and as if you actually care about me. Visit www.writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click on support the blog to donate either by giving to GoFundMe through PayPal, or you can support me by buying me a coffee, which trust me, is dearly needed. First off, I've got to apologize for the audio quality of this episode. I was traveling to promote my own release in March when this was recorded. I was in a hotel and I didn't have my usual toys with me, so it resulted in a not-so-hot audio capture. Today's guest is Beth Kander, an award-winning playwright and author. The second book in her dystopian epic Original Sin comes out this fall from Owl House Books. While she writes across a variety of genres, as a storyteller, she's always exploring identity, unexpected connections, and the sharp turns taken at the dangerous intersection of morality and humanity, usually with more humor than you might expect. Beth joined me today to talk about selling a novel to a smaller publishing house on her own and the risks of writing to the trend, if the trend might stick you in a niche. Need help getting your manuscript or query letter into shape? Emily Martin Editorial Services offers a range of critique packages to suit your needs. Visit emilymartinedits.com for package details, client testimonials, and to reserve your spot. Mention the Writer Writer Pants on Fire podcast for 10% off any service. My listeners are always interested in learning more about the agent hunt. You're currently in between agents. So if you'd like to tell us a little bit about what that process has been like for you, that would be great. I can definitely weigh in on the whole rejection thing and all of the challenges of this process, because in my experience, it's not just about getting an agent. It's about getting the right agent. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think that is at least as hard as finding a home for your work. Um, Since I have managed to go through some publishing situations without an agent, there are definitely pitfalls, but yeah, I mean, the agent hunt is hard. So I had representation when I lived in Mississippi. I was with a talent agency that mostly represented actors, but they had a clause in their contract about writing representation because they were sort of all talent inclusive, but I was allowed to still submit on my own. So I did a lot of submitting on my own and then just sort of got into that habit and moved up to Chicago. And it was really only right around a year ago that I realized the publishing journey that I'm on and where I want to go next, it's really time to get back into the agent hunt and try to find the right person. And because I already had a three book deal and this body of playwriting work and all this experience, a lot of my other writer friends were like, oh, you're going to find the right agent overnight. This is going to be such an easy process. The raw, embarrassing truth is that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. 
It's, it's one of my biggest imposter syndrome triggers as whenever oh, the agent yes. conversation comes up because it's been hard. I've had a few offers that didn't really wind up being the right person for me for various reasons. I had one person who sent over a contract, then let me know that they were quitting their job. They could recommend no one else at their agency because they hated them all. And it was just like so super awkward. So yeah, right now I, I actually am in the hopeful spot of having several full uh, requests for manuscripts out and a few good dialogues going. But yeah, I'm very much in the weeds with that right now while still working on book promotion and having a day job. The agent search is its own side gig all on its own. It really is. And I think it's something that a lot of people don't realize Especially if you, as you were saying, you already have books that are out there and a body of work that is out there, and yet it hasn't been quite enough to hook the fish for you yet. And a lot of people hear that and they're, 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 they find that really intimidating or really scary. But you're right in that if you're not with the right agent or if you're not with someone that is fitting you or your body of work or what you have envisioned for a career in general – it's better to have no agent than have the wrong one. I definitely believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. And the hunt itself, as you were saying, just being its own body of work. I was searching for an agent for 10 years. That's partially my <laughs> own fault because I was querying when I was not ready. I was nowhere near, nowhere near querying ready as a writer, but I also wasn't doing the homework. I wasn't learning about agents and genres, yeah. and even age categories. I was just like, I wrote a book. Do you want to read it? Like that was pretty much actually what my query said. <laughs> well, as you said, you have to do that homework. Like for me, I've found that I really need when I'm researching the agents to make sure that they're interested in multiple genres and that it's not going to be someone that says, oh, well, I don't even want to hear about anything you're doing in the playwriting world. It's one thing if they don't represent it. That's Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. But if it's a, I need you to shut that down because I only represent middle grade books. This is all we're going to ever talk about. Mm -hmm. Then that's probably not the right fit for me. And they have to do their due diligence. But as writers, we really have to do our due diligence, too. Oh, absolutely. When I finally secured representation, as I said, I'd been querying for a decade. I ended up having two offers of representation in 20, I think it was 10. I had a well-known agent that was offering, and then I had a baby agent that only (laughs) had like one sale. After phone calls with both of them, The agent that was well-known was very invested in the romance world, and Mm -hmm. that was where her focus was, and that was where her connections were. And even though she was, at the time, the stronger agent with a larger list of clients and sales, she was not the right agent to build my career. I write gritty. I write dark. I'm always going to be on that path, and she wasn't going to have the connections necessary to fit Not necessarily what I was promoting at the time or what I was putting on her plate at the moment, but what I knew I would be writing in the future. And I think it takes time as a writer to know that really solidly about yourself. Like, this is my wheelhouse. This is my greatest point of interest. So if that's not exciting to the agent, eventually, even if not immediately, that's going to be a problem in the relationship. You are the author in the YA area of a trilogy called Original Sin. It's a dystopian thriller that deals with synthetic humans versus human humans. One of the things that I just inferred 
from looking at your list of available titles and looking at the publication dates was that you had probably written this dystopian trilogy, or at least the first one, had this idea for this dystopian trilogy, and you weren't able to secure representation because of genre burnout in the industry. Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, I think that was definitely a big part of it. I just assumed that. So... I would just want you to talk a little bit about that if you could, because you decided that you were just going to do it anyway. You wrote the story, the trilogy that was in your heart, even though those odds were against you. So if you could share a little bit about that, I think that would be great. On the simplest level, it's just kind of what you have to do. You have to write what you want to write, especially when writing isn't your full-time job yet. I have to do work tasks and I have to write things that I'm not necessarily thrilled about writing all of the time. Mm -hmm. So when I'm going to carve out my storytelling time, my writing time, it has to be something that I'm passionate about. So even if people are saying, oh, too zeitgeisty, this is a saturated market right now, you still just got to write what you want to write and also know that things like what the zeitgeist is now change every five minutes. And you can't, you know, try to write to the trend you have have to write write what you want to be writing, writing, which is really what you want to be reading. If it's a story that you care about, you keep working on it. I definitely don't think of myself as a dystopian or sci-fi writer, even though I do love reading those stories. Uh, Maybe I'll write something in that world again, but probably not. So the other big risk there was if I got too caught up in thinking, is this career defining? Is this, you know, hard to market and then to what end? Because I don't want to set myself on an Orson Scott card path. Right. That too could have been a hang up. Write the story that you have to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I have a book under my bed that listeners are probably sick of hearing of at this point. But I wrote it like 15 years ago and it is uh, urban fantasy. And I was five, ten years too late with it, and everybody was done. And my agent keeps telling me, hold on to it. Just hold on to it, Mindy, because eventually that's going to swing back around. I update it every, like, five or six years. My characters were originally talking to each other over AOL Instant Messenger. (laughs) I love those little technology technology touch touch points points that tell you just how long you've been working on something. Yep. <laughs> they all had flip phones too. So. But yeah, your time could be coming. I was at a reading event earlier this week hosted by the Speculative Fiction Society of Chicago. And one of the pieces that was read was urban fantasy, and it was so good. I'm like, I, I wouldn't name that as a genre that I'm super into, but I can't wait till. I get to read that book. So maybe it's swinging back around. Because you were also talking about career defining. And if I would have gotten published, if I would have finished this and gotten it out 15 years ago, right when the cusp of the urban fantasy was happening, I would have been published in like that hot genre right at the beginning. If you look at the people that broke out with that, it's hard to identify ones that are still writing today because if that's what you wrote, if you break in with that hot genre, it's hard to step away from it then. Coming up, the marriage of business and creativity necessary to make it in publishing. Also, how to know which creative medium your story is best suited for. Revna is a factory worker with illegal magic. Lene disguised herself as a boy so she could join the army. When they're caught, they both fear harsh judgments. 
Instead, they're offered the chance to join an all-women's aviation regiment. Revna and Lene can hardly stand each other, but they must fly deadly missions together under cover of darkness. If they can't work together, the enemy's superior firepower will destroy them. If they don't destroy each other first. Called a fierce and compelling breakout debut that should not be missed, We Rule the Night by Claire Eliza Bartlett. So tell us a little bit, though, about Original Sin and how how it did come to find publication then. One of the big five did still, in their sci-fi imprint, allow uh, unagented submissions. At least they did seven years ago. I don't know if they still do. So I wrote and finished the first book. I sent it over way too early there, but managed to catch an editor's attention. And it sat with them for three years. And I would get a phone call from the acquisitions editor every year with an update and how excited they were. And it's going to probably have a place next year. So I was extremely motivated to write the next two books because I really thought, like, I'm going to land this. This is going to be the path for this book. This is going to be great. The third phone call three years in that I got was, I'm so sorry, market saturation, blah, blah, blah. Like we're not picking up more trilogies like this. I sobbed for a day, ate a bunch of chocolate, had a lot of wine, and then told myself that the silver lining was, I'm now not trying to sell an idea with the first book written. I have a trilogy. Yeah. And some way, somehow, I will get that out there. And it took another uh, year and a half because I was sometimes focusing on the agent search, sometimes still doing direct submission, a new imprint actually emerged. So Owl House Books has only now been around for not quite three years. It's an imprint of homebound publications. And it's like a mid-sized press in Connecticut. And I was one of the first authors to query them with a big sci-fi project for their new imprint. And I got to speak with uh, their editor and it just It was a good fit. I knew that it would be a different kind of trajectory than going with a big five or then continuing to work first on landing an agent before shifting back over to trying to get it published. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I'd I'd been living with this world for five years. You know what that feels like. And I knew that it was going to be, you know, a several years process, even after signing a contract to have the books then come out over the course of the next four years. Mm Yeah, it wound up being the right choice. I have learned so much uh, already in this process that I think is not just strengthening my writing, but sort of my my business head for writing. Because, I mean, I have an MFA in creative writing, and I, I love the program. It's not a slight on it at all. Very little attention is given in any academic program that I know of for artists to marketing yourself as an artist, handling your finances as an artist, taking care of the not sexy, not fun business parts of being an artist. Taxes, receipts. Um, Yeah, yeah. So I've also been learning about all of that, which has been great in the sense of necessary. (laughs) It would be wonderful if there was some sort of online course that publishers provided for their new authors. Maybe we'll offer that someday. I'll call you in three years if you want to teach people what we do. That's the kind of thing nobody tells you. I mean, I learned so many tricks just from traveling with other authors and talking Mm -hmm. to other authors. I'm from Ohio, but I'm in Tulsa because I'm on the road at the moment. And the other day I was telling my my media escort, I was getting out of the car at the hotel and I was updating my app on my phone for that particular line of hotels because I'm like, yeah, this is a trick. (laughs) Somebody else pays their hotel and you get the points. And then eventually you have 
free stays and the same works with like if you have your publisher or for a conference or something and they pay for it you get mileage on your airline account and then at another date in the future you've got mileage that you can go do an event where they can't pay you to come banking your future budget for events that don't have their own budget to fly exactly exactly so i will fly somewhere else when someone can't pay to fly me and i will stay in a hotel because i've built up points in the goodwill off of people who can do you have the Stride Tax app? I don't. What is that? That's my new favorite one. I just got it a couple of weeks ago. It's this app and you can plug in what your profession is. So like writer, artist, creative is a category mm-hmm. and throughout the year. So you don't have to sit there quarterly or at the end of the year and figure it out. It gives you super easy ways to track all of your tax deductible expenses. So like you can tap it once and say, I'm driving. And it will track your mileage as you drive to a book event and say 637, driving to the bookseller. And then you download the whole thing at the end of the year. And I mean, food expenses, travel, hotel, anything. It's like two clicks to put it in and it stores it all there for you. And it's amazing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Original Sin is about? Don't worry, sci-fi geeks, you will love it too. But it's really sci-fi for not sci-fi readers, especially since my background is in playwriting. I love dialogue. I love love ensemble. I love things that move quickly and give clues that you can put together later. So it's very much like literary fiction set in dystopia. Mm-hmm. A lot of big questions. The the largest just sort of being, how the hell did we get here? Yeah. Uh, and I started writing it almost a decade ago, and that question just sort of keeps getting more <laughs> highlighted and underlined and circled in the notebook of my life. Really cool. And they have great covers, by the way. I don't tout this a lot, but he deserves the credit The first couple of rounds of cover art that they sent me just really were not working for the piece. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be married to a very talented artist. And so he's like, babe, let me just take a stab at it. And so he designed the covers, which uh, tell a little story in and of themselves. When you put all three together, you will see another story that is embedded within the story. Great. I sent it to my editor and she's like this is great whoever this is we can't afford him and I was like I have a special rate (laughs) we can afford him that's amazing that is fantastic it's not like you pried that compliment out of me I just tossed it to you like yeah that was my husband (laughs) yeah thanks now I'll be like hey babe you're gonna want to listen to this podcast (laughs) that is your YA trilogy that's out but you also write across the gamut you have YA children's books novellas and plays you've mentioned your playwriting a few times and I want to talk about that more in a little bit but When you have an idea, when you have that original inception, how do you know which category it's suited for? Yeah, I feel like the answer is I just know. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while I'm wrong. Ah. (laughs) So like each category really does have its own storytelling strengths. So in a novel, you get to build an entire world for your reader. Mm -hmm. In a play, it's more like you're drafting the blueprints for a story. And then you have to trust actors and directors and designers to build on that foundation and make something sturdy and beautiful that an audience gets to inhabit for a few hours. It's a lot more ephemeral. It changes all the time. And you have to trust other artists when you're working on a play, much more so than with a novel, where you are the one really micromanaging the details and making sure that you get everything in there that you want in there. And because of that, most of the time it's just really clear to me where an idea is meant to live. Like, plays come to me as plays. Mm -hmm. Stories come to me as stories. 
It's almost, almost like, like different, different languages. languages. So, so like my, my bubby used to say, oh, it's funnier in Yiddish. Like <laughs> some things just, you know, just sounds right in that language. Right. So some stories sound better to me as plays. Some sound better as, as novels or as something for kids. But I, I do get it wrong every once in a while. I'll be like several scenes into a play and go, nope, you know what? This is a book. My MFA thesis project was actually adapting the first stage play I ever wrote into a novel and then writing an accompanying thesis paper about the elements of story and what was lost or gained narratively in each format. So I can definitely nerd out about this particular topic for a long time. That is fascinating because I was going to follow up asking you if you ever have translated, for lack of a better word, uh, one of your works into another. And so you have. So tell tell me about that process. What's that like? It's, it's different going from book to play or play to book. And I have experimented with both. When you're going from a play to a book, it feels a lot more like you have an outline, but your job is really that you have to build it up because you can't trust that there's going to be some actor who's going to embody all of the emotion and gravitas and whatever to this role. Like you have to tell us what's going on in that character's head. Plays are all about subtext. A novel really has to be about text. Whereas if you're trying to adapt a novel into something for the stage, it's really winnowing it down and figuring out like, what are the essentials that you have to leave in because otherwise you lose what the heart of the story is and where can you make room for the interpretation that other artists expect to get to do when they walk into a rehearsal room. Right. And that is where, the generosity comes in because mm-hmm. I offer editorial services. What I see often in a less mature writer is how hard they're trying to control the visual. Yeah. And they're saying, you know, she scratched her eyebrow with her right hand. Okay, like I understand you are seeing this in your head like mm-hmm. a movie and you see her scratching her left eyebrow with her right hand. You think that's important because you want you want your reader to see what you see. But you have to ask yourself, is it important? And yeah. most of the time, character movement is not important. I will cut every single movement from a book. Most of the time, it is not important. It's not rel- If you're not learning something about the character or if it doesn't impact the plot, you don't need it. But... When it is a play, like you're saying, there's all this nuance and body language and subtext that's coming out of the actor. And sometimes you'll see a writer that is less experienced trying to capture that only through movement. Yeah, it's It's such such a fine line. line. I think Stephen King and on writing is something about like, if someone's someone's getting out of a car, just get get them to the the next place. place. Right. We We know know that everyone opens the door, unbuckles their seatbelt. Like, we don't need any of that. But we do need to know, like, what a room looks like, if that's important in a novel, if that's going to inform something someone notices later. Uh, whereas in a play, you can let the designer give people a whole world to look at and figuring out, you know, what is necessary and what isn't. Uh, really, I think that applies to any writing genre. Get rid of anything that isn't necessary, but make sure that you keep 
what you need. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting that you just mentioned the designer. I don't have any kind of relationship with playwriting. And you're right. Like I'm sitting here and you mentioned the designer, the stage designer. I'm like, well, yeah, of course the stage designer has a room in the execution of the story. Obviously they do. It's just like being a set designer in a movie. And I always notice set design in movies, especially mm-hmm. uh, movies that are set when I grew up like in the time period when they're uh, late 70s early 80s or early 90s I'm always just like oh I mean yeah that's my living room yeah the set designer for this piece is amazing when you are a playwright you're making room for so many other people the director the actors and the set designer and even I would assume a musical score if you are operating in that area yeah, yeah lighting, lighting sound, sound all of these, these things, things contribute, contribute to storytelling, storytelling in ways that uh, really, I mean, can just be transcendent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're trying, trying to leave room for all of that. We keep talking about movies, and I'll say, A, just uh, indulge an aside on the getting little tiny details right. It, no spoilers, but I saw Captain Marvel yesterday, and there's so much amazing 90s details in there. That was, like, one of the most fun things. Like, look at the movies in the blockbuster is you know, all I'm going to say. What I've get heard. Joy. That's what I've heard. And I don't have any investment whatsoever in superheroes. But because I've heard so much about set design with 90s nods and yeah, that's so my good. time period that I'm just like, oh, i got to go see this. When I've taught playwriting, the biggest mistake that I see playwrights make talking about the, like, adaptation between different genres mm-hmm. is thinking that a play is a movie. So stage directions that will call for someone going from the interior of a car to a house party to a bathroom where they're making out with someone in the space of a page. Right, no. That can't happen on a stage. A camera pushing in will give you the sort of detail you can have in a film that you can't have in a stage. And having a full page of what's going on in someone's head, you get that gift in a novel you lose that and hand it over to the actor in a play because exposition of, oh, while I'm looking at him, I can't stop wondering if he remembers that time in third grade when I fell and skinned my knee in front of, like, all of that is gone. Right. There's beauty in all of it, but it is, it's very different. Lastly, the different skills involved in playwriting versus writing a novel and where you can find Beth online. Compassionate, honest, and hopeful. All the Walls of Belfast celebrates the power of first love to build bridges and scale walls. Fiona and Danny's voices weave a tapestry of modern-day Belfast, Northern Ireland, that will stick with readers for a long time. All the Walls of Belfast by Sarah Carlson. I want to move on and talk a little more about being a playwright. We kind of covered some of craft, but... Let's talk about market. Like there's a there's an entirely different industry at work there. What is that like and how does someone break into the playwriting arena? No, I'm super excited to get to talk about that because even though I've been doing it for a decade, I somehow still feel sort of like a rookie in the author space. But playwriting, I've been doing for closer to two decades. So, you know, I I, I can weigh in. (laughs) The good news, I, I think, for aspiring playwrights is that in some ways, the path is actually a lot clearer Mm. than in the novel publishing world, right? With a script, pretty much no matter your topic or genre or style, there's an order of operations. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you write a play, you have a table read so you can hear it aloud with some actors, get their feedback. 
Uh, even before you have to deal with a writer or an editor, it's usually those other artists that you reach out to first. Mm -hmm. You revise it, you start submitting it to theaters and competitions, and there are so many of them. But your best option is actually if you're involved with a local theater group, and you should be if you want to be a playwright, you reach out to them about workshopping it. There might not be any money involved, but you do a public reading. You get an actual audience in the room, get some feedback, revise it some more. And then you get your first production under your belt. And if you have that relationship with the theater, it's often the same one that workshopped it or someone who came to the workshop and knows another theater that does those sorts of plays. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot more very successful unagented playwrights than I do very successful unagented authors because there's such a huge market of small and mid-sized theaters and um, circuits that don't require any sort of representation to be considered for production. And in fact, publishing houses, uh, and I actually work as a representative for a theatrical licensing house, what's more important to them is that you have that production. You have some production still, some good photographs from the show, you have a review from a local paper, you've established that people will come out and see the show. And as soon as that has happened, you can usually submit directly to most of the uh, publishing and licensing houses out there. And it's not just about your script itself, but it's established track record. And there's so much community around that. In some ways, it's a lot less lonely than being an author can be. Theater really is a team sport. I don't interact always as directly with other playwrights, although I now have a nice cohort of them that I adore, but I've always interacted with actors and directors and the people I wanted to be working with at every stage in the game and always had people asking about what's going on with the script and knowing how to speak that language, even if they're not the writer, because they still play a role uh, in what's going on. Someone is looking to just get started. You think, oh, I want to write a play. The first thing I would say is, well, you have to be a theater person. Start showing up for other people's readings. Volunteer to work the box office. Make sure that you're knowing people. It it does take a little more leaving the house than getting started with writing. But you get to sit, you know, in the dark alone watching shows a lot. So Mm -hmm. even for the introverts among us, it's not constant small talk, which is nice. So you're talking about doing table reads and run-throughs before you've uh, even taken other steps. So, and then you revise based on that. So for example, have you ever written something that you're like, I mean, this is hilarious. This is going to bring the house down. And then it just falls on its face. It is not funny on the stage. Yeah, then crickets. Yeah, and that's exactly why you do a table read so you can figure out, oh, okay, only funny to me. Right. Uh, in, in front of a small group of trusted people instead of uh, in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. Comedy is hard. Everyone says that, but it's it's so true. And I say that as someone who does write a lot of comedy. Comedy is a precise art. Yep. Like, yeah, I want to make sure that the emotional gut punches are landing, but I need to know if the jokes are landing, man, because that is what really makes you feel like an idiot in the theater if no one is laughing at what you thought was the best setup ever when you have a line that is supposed to be funny and it's not funny there's no way for you to deliver it the audience knows it's supposed to be funny and you might get like a mercy giggle or like uncomfortable laughter it's the worst. Uh, my my husband sometimes does stand-up comedy, which I find terrifying. Yeah. And I, I kind of hate going to stand-up comedy shows because unless the stand-up comedian is really good, you're guaranteed those moments. Yeah. Where uh, obviously it's meant to be funny. They're a comedian. That's why, that's why they're here. 
and when a joke just falls flat and you hear like the pity laugh, the awkward cough in the back, I want to be anywhere but here. You have reciprocal embarrassment. Like you're yes. embarrassed. It's, it's painful for everyone involved. No yeah. one gets out un- unscathed. Oh no, it's awful. No, definitely stand up. There's no way. When I do my presentations at high schools, one of them I've been presenting on and talking about for seven years. And I have that thing down. You got your patter. Exactly. It's for anywhere from seventh graders to seniors. So I have different versions that I'll do depending on the age of my audience. Like I have some great jokes that'll work for seniors <laughs> and I definitely can't throw at seventh graders. Adults and, and kids alike would be like, oh my gosh, that was so fantastic. You should do stand up. And I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> this right, this looks unrehearsed, but right. this is very, very down to a science. Yes. It's like I have my pauses scheduled. <laughs> yeah. Hold for three, two, next joke here. Yeah. It's, it's a, a great compliment that it doesn't look canned. Right. That it doesn't seem like you're just going through the motions. So that's good. Exactly. No, that does feel good. But when I am doing a school visit and I'll have like anywhere from four to eight different class groups that I'm speaking to and the adults that are like either whether a librarian or a teacher that has four different classes in there, I'll be like, I am so sorry. Because <laughs> you're about to hear the same thing. Because you're going to hear the same thing every time. Like you could overlay it. And I actually do have like three or four different versions, like not just for age considerations, but also just I have a different insert, different side story here. Just yes. so my audience isn't exhausted. And I'm not exhausted. You get bored with it. When I was doing some teaching, I heard this really great, just a little truism, which is that everyone can focus and pay attention, especially if they're seated, for only about as many minutes as they are years old. And we all max out at 30. Wow. So like five-year-olds can sit and listen to you for five minutes. 12-year-olds can sit and listen to you for 12 minutes. And then you got to let them get up, move, change what they're doing. And yeah, for all of us after 30 minutes of just sitting. So I think it's wise to like know your audience and then also be like, okay, hey, and here's permission. Just stand up and stretch for a second before we go to the next Q&A. Right. Especially with like teenagers, it never fails. Well, actually, I mean, younger kids too. Like if you say something funny, they then turn to each other and say, oh my God, that was so funny when she said. (laughs) (laughs) Did you just hear this thing that we all just heard? Right. And they all like take a minute and repeat it to each other. And I just let them. I'll just wait. They have to do that. And sometimes I'll have teachers like try to shush them or squash them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let them go. Let them go. They need to. This this is actually in my script as well. I'm ready for this. I expect this every time. Tell us what is up next for you, what you might be working on, and then also where people can find you online. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, So the second uh, book in the original Sin series, Born in Sin, is coming out this fall. I just got my arcs and I did a little preview reading here last week that was super fun. I will say that book two was my favorite out of the series to write. The bonus just for you and your listeners, since we were talking earlier about uh, eras, it's almost all flashback. So there's lots of uh, stuff in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It's it's like an oldie station. Oh, that's um, so funny. I'm also querying right now with a middle grade. Everything uh, that I'm writing now is skewing a little bit younger, but not necessarily less complex. So hopefully I'll have some stuff to announce around that soon. And on the playwriting side, my play Hazardous Materials is premiering this summer at Creed Repertory Theater. So I'll be uh, doing some theater at 9,000 feet up in Colorado this summer, which I'm really excited about. That's awesome. 
I'm on Instagram and Facebook as just Beth Kander. My Twitter handle is by Beth Kander. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.